Okay, Luke chapter 9, if you would please. Today, verses 18 to 27. I don't know of another song that we sing that makes me want to shout more than before the throne of God. I I love it. And uh, let's begin with prayer because I, after singing it, I want to pray. Father, we thank you that although what Satan accuses us of is true, the guilt within, we have in glory our own perfect, spotless righteousness, our Savior who stands for us, praying for us, We are perfect in Christ. Our record is perfect in Christ. We are as acceptable before you as Jesus is himself. And you assure us in your word that you can no more cast us out than you could cast out your son for we are in him. So, Father, boldly and with joy we come to you, asking that you would accomplish your work in us that you started before the world began. Continue it. And we know, Father, that on the day of Christ, you will bring it to completion. Today, further that work. Do what only you can do in our hearts. Only you can persuade us. Only you can give us faith. Only you can change our lives. Only you can make these hearts to bring you glory. Do so. Give us these hearts. I pray, Father, that every heart here would be laid down for you. I pray that every soul would deny itself, every person take up their cross, and with joy we would follow after Jesus. Please help us, give to us your Holy Spirit in this moment, that your word would fall on our hearts as good ground, as seed on the good ground. We ask in Jesus' name, and we ask for his sake. Amen. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There is a little subtle signal at the beginning of Luke's narrative in this passage we're studying today that tells us that we are at a crucial development in the life of Jesus. The gospel writer Luke, more than the other gospel writers, mentions the prayers of Jesus. Um, they, um, they, they, they speak of prayers. We know of John 17. Matthew uh, showed us, you know, how Jesus taught us to pray and so on. But, but Luke is unique in the sense of how many times he mentions the prayers of Jesus. And sometimes he mentions them rather quickly, just like here in verse 18. But every time Luke mentions one of these prayers, it is a signal that we are looking at a crucial development, a critical shift even, in the life of Jesus. So, for example, we see that Luke mentions very quickly that Jesus was praying at his baptism and when he was anointed there by the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus was praying all night long before he chose the twelve to be his apostles He was praying at the hour of his struggle in Gethsemane. And then, of course, on the cross. And right here. But I mentioned those five things. The last of them being this passage. And each shows you that wherever Jesus is praying or mentioned to be praying in Luke, we are looking at a critical development. So... I know that's a detail that it would be take quite a bit of work in Luke to notice. But now that you know it, whenever you come across these prayers, right here, you come to this and you say, okay, what is it that is about to happen? Something big, something critical is about to occur. So what is it? After all of the demonstrations of the glory of Jesus, finally, at last, we hear the confession of his true identity. Not only that, but after all the demonstrations of his glory, Jesus incredibly, I know we know the story. I know we we know how this unfolds. But incredibly, after all the demonstrations of his glory, Jesus comes out with the truth that he is in fact going to be killed. And then, he calls you and he calls me to come and to die with him. To come and die. And the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to come to Jesus and with him die? There is no true coming to Jesus without the willingness to die to yourself that you might live unto God. And so facing this very sobering revelation, are you going to turn back now? I mean, there might be someone here who says, whoa, wait a second, I felt like I was getting all in. 
going all the way. But I appreciate this warning because thanks, but no thanks. So many disciples, would-be disciples, turned back at the hard sayings of Jesus. So many people within the pews today want to soften those hard sayings so that they don't mean what Jesus plainly meant by them. Will you be one of them? Will you soften the hard saying of Christ? Will you turn back now from following Jesus? Or are you willing to die to you that you might live unto God? The great question over the first several chapters of Luke that we have brought up time and time again, and I've said is now the foremost question of history, is, the question is, who is this man, Jesus Everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did indicated that he was more than a son of a carpenter. And even those who couldn't stand Jesus realized that he was more than a son of a carpenter. When Jesus calmed the storm, and this is just in chapter 8, after the disciples had been with Jesus for quite a while, Jesus calmed the storm. I mean, it stopped, it shut up when he told it to be still. And the disciples then said, who is this? And that's after they'd been with Christ as firsthand, right there, eyewitnesses for a quite a while. And they said, who is this? Not to say that they didn't believe in him until that moment or, or what have you, but as if to suggest that most conclusions about Jesus, probably even their own, seriously underestimated the glory of this man. Following that, as we opened up chapter 9, we saw that Herod Antipas was hearing all of the reports about Jesus, had for some time, and the crowds, it says, we're saying, this got back to Herod, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, this is chapter 9, verse 7, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod was perplexed about this and wondered, John I beheaded, but who is this? about whom I hear such things. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? So now, Luke says, Jesus rises from prayer, and for the very first time, he puts this question to his disciples. Everybody has been asking, who is Jesus has been on everyone's lips. For the first time, we see it on Christ's lips as he puts it to the disciples. It was time for them to come out with it. They had been with him long enough, seen so many wonders, It was time for them to come out with it. So he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. You know, only two groups have rightly identified who Jesus is so far in the life of Jesus up to this point here. Only two groups, and neither one of them are human. The angels at the announcement of his birth and the welcome of Jesus into the world, and the demons whom Jesus encountered throughout his ministry were the only ones to this point who rightly identified who Jesus is. Now, the Galileans, in general, had a very high opinion of Jesus. In fact, uh, high enough of an opinion that they would enshrine him at, in some kind of uh, prophet's hall of fame, if you would, That's how highly they thought about Jesus. 
But as high of a view as that was, it was not nearly high enough of a view. You know, you and I are seriously inclined to overvalue people, places, and pleasures. And seriously inclined to undervalue Jesus. But it is impossible for you to have too high of a view of Christ. He says to the disciples, okay, but who do you say that I am? Verse 20. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. I'm, I'm really glad that we are taking our time in Luke. Do you know it's been a year now? There were some breaks. Okay, you have to give me that. We had some breaks in there of a couple months. Um, but I'm so glad that we have spent this long of a time in Luke's gospel so that for several months of Jesus' several months ministry, I mean, we've been several months in Luke and Jesus was several months in Galilee and we have been looking into the face of the, the King of glory and we've been listening to him speak and we've been watching these wonders unfold and we've been standing there in a sense as people have asked over and over again, who is Jesus? And so by this time in the narrative, after witnessing so much glory from Christ, you should feel within your own heart the confession of who he is pent up within your soul and ready to burst. And when Peter finally comes out with it, the first man that we see it in Christ's ministry, and he says, you are the Christ of God. I, ho- I hope that you can get a sense of the tremors of the explosion of that revelation of who this man is. He is no one less than the Christ. We know it. It's as plain to us as the day. He is no one less than the Christ. Now we use this term so often. We tack the title Christ onto the name Jesus so often. It is a blight on us that it's even used, not us specifically, but humanity in general, that we would reduce the name Jesus Christ, to a word for cursing. But we tack that title on to the name Jesus so often that we might not even think to ask what Christ means. And if there's anyone here taking notes, I'll give you the quick and short answer. It means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. But let's back up and get the, the fullness of this. Right from the very beginning, after the fall, God promised a unique individual descendant of Eve who would come and save God's people, who would defeat the enemy serpent, and who would reclaim this planet for the kingdom of God. Right from the beginning, he was promised. And right from the beginning of Israel, Israel the nation, God deliberately designed everything around Jesus. In our Sunday school classes, we have been going through the Old Testament from the beginning. Everything God designs deliberately around His Son. The covenants that promised them. The laws that governed them. The sacrifices that they offered. The entire narrative of their history 
the subjects of their songs, the announcements of their prophecies. Everything was designed to resemble Jesus. Everything was designed to bear witness to him, to prefigure him. Or when you think about the narrative of their history and their rebellion and their moral collapses, even their history was ordained for them to feel the void that only the Christ could fill. Everything was designed to lift their heads and to crane their necks and to strain their eyes of hope on the horizon of the day of Christ. Now specifically, God ordained the offices of prophet and priest and king through which God would mediate his relationship with his people. There had to be go-betweens. Prophet and priest and king were those three offices. And so men who were appointed to these offices, priests and kings in particular, were consecrated to that service by the anointing of oil. So the promised one, the ultimate promised one to come, is called the anointed one. The name in Hebrew is Messiah, and the Greek equivalent is Christ. And let me sum it up for you. Within this title, Christ, are all the promises of God. That's how massive this is. That should tell us how terrible it is that we would take that name in vain and ridicule it and trample it in the dirt. He is the Christ. Within that title are all the promises of God. Jesus has always been the goal. He has always been the hope. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Every promise is yes in Him. He is Jesus the Christ. Verse 21, it says, He strictly and we will say, and strangely charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. It feels strange, that is. Why can't they spread the news now that they have rightly identified Jesus as the Christ? Why can't they begin to tell people? It's because although their comprehension of Jesus is certainly much better than the crowds who only, they stop at prophet, great prophet, end time prophet like Elijah, their, their understanding of Jesus is certainly much better than the crowds, but they still don't understand enough about him. They don't understand enough to begin to tell people that Jesus is the Christ. What don't they understand about Jesus, the Christ? They don't understand his supremacy which, of course, they think they do. They finally think, hey, it's clicked with me. Fully and finally, I get it. Jesus is the Christ. I mean, how much more awesome could anyone be? They think that they understand the supremacy of Christ. And as for his suffering, that's the other part they don't understand. They don't have a clue about that. Now, in a week's time for us, and in a week's time for them, there's going to be the event of Christ's transfiguration on the mountain. Remember? And Jesus' glory is going to be unveiled for the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. But the same Peter that confessed that Jesus is the Christ of God 
is going to come out with these strange and just bumbling statements about what he understands Jesus to be. So clearly, from the transfiguration account, we know that they really don't get yet. They don't get the supremacy of Jesus. They don't get how glorious Christ is. And again, as for his suffering, they're going to dismiss it and they're going to deny it right until the very end. And when that suffering actually happens, it's going to be a shock, a complete shock to them. And that's why Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone, not yet. Don't tell them that I am the Christ. So in verse 22, Jesus drops the next words. And the first thing they hear is, the Son of Man must. So just get into this and put yourself in the disciples' shoes, okay? Peter has finally come out with the confession, you are the Christ of God. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man must. And what would you be waiting, now that the Christ, the Messiah, has really clicked with you and you've confessed it publicly, what would you be waiting for? You remember what the title Son of Man means? We actually took a whole sermon to develop that theme because Luke kept bringing it up on the words of Jesus. Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. We talked about what that means. More than the Son of Man identifying with us, you know, being human, okay, we think Son of Man means he's human. It's bigger than that. In fact, Son of Man speaks of Jesus' reign as the Christ because it's the Son of Man whom the prophet Daniel envisioned coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. Recall this? About 600 years before Jesus. He said that he saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, and to him the Ancient of Days gave dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That was what was wrapped up in the title Son of Man. So when Jesus says, okay, you've confessed me as the Christ, the Son of Man must, must go into Jerusalem and finally deliver the people of God forever from all... Roman-like powers. I think that they're on the edge of their seat, even though Jesus has told them not to say anything yet. I think that they're on the edge of their seat, waiting for the announcement that they have been hoping for 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 centuries as God's people. They're waiting for this announcement to drop. But Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You and I aren't surprised by these words, because we know where this story is going. We're, we're quite used to this. In fact, uh, the cross is part and parcel with our understanding of the Christ. But again, since we've been following Luke's narrative of Jesus for a year now, I hope that you are tracking along well enough with the disciples, and I I hope that you do this. You put yourself in their shoes, and you're right there, in a sense, to follow with them. 
I hope that you can get a feel for what they would have felt in this moment. Because this is the last thing that they would have expected to hear. Which is why they will immediately dismiss it. And in the couple weeks to come, we're going to talk more about that. But that's why they dismiss it. Because this is nothing less. And I hope you can get a feel for this. It's nothing less than a shock to their system. Killed. Third day rise. Okay, I'm, yeah, you're going to rise. You're going to be insulted. But killed. What's his, what is he talking about? And then as shocking as that was, we have verse 23. Now this is the part that is still shocking to us. To this day. What Jesus says in verse 23, still to this day, fails to register with the faith of professing Christians everywhere. I'm telling you, it is so tempting for preachers to soften the hard words of Christ in verse 23. In fact, there are many preachers and congregations guilty of softening Christ's hard words, smoothing them over. Don't. Don't smooth over Christ's word. Don't you dare because it is a tragic mistake to soften what Jesus says here. If anyone, anyone, Jesus, it says, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There is no doubt in my mind that these are the hardest words your and my idolatrous hearts can hear. These are the hardest words you can hear because Everything that's in me, that's of me, wants to resist this. I like living. I love living and everything within me resists dying. So it is so tempting to say, well, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't quite mean it like we, but do you know what the disciples pictured when Jesus said this? This whole take up your cross, they knew this language. They knew it very well, so much better than we do. For us, we think of a cross as pretty and attractive and a piece of gold that we hang around our necks and that kind of thing. But when they heard, take up your cross, they pictured a man hoisting a wooden beam to his shoulder and walking to the place of his execution where he would lie down on that beam and be nailed to it to die. When they heard, take up your cross, they pictured a man trudging on quivering Legs to a gruesome end. That's what they pictured. So what is Jesus calling all of those who would follow him to? He is calling you. Listen. He is calling you to lay down your life to his will and to live under the authority of his lordship alone. You see, when a man hoisted that wooden beam to his shoulder, that man did so as someone who was convicted as a criminal. He had lived a rebel life, and now the state was putting him to death, and he put that beam on his shoulder to say, not willingly, of course, but I submit. This is the end of me. I submit to the authority of the state, and it came with obvious humbling. Jesus is not calling us to submit to the world. 
He is calling us, however, to submit to the authority of His Lordship, outside of which there is nothing. There is no, there is no realm over which Jesus does not have authority. So you can't, you can't piecemeal your life and say, Monday to Saturday is mine, and two hours on Sunday belongs to Jesus. My church life belongs to Jesus, and my devotional life belongs to Jesus, but my public life, my community life, my school life, my career, my friendships, all of that, that belongs to me. Jesus is the authority over all, and all of it must be submitted to his lordship. He And notice, he is calling us to every day hoist this cross. Every morning that you get up, Put the cross back up on your shoulder in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Every morning, every day. Now, this is where, if you're listening, if you're listening, where you may be tempted to say, okay, thanks for that warning. And thanks, but no thanks. I was going in. I was almost all there. But not that. I can't take that. But I want you to listen to me. Jesus is not warning you off. He's not trying to keep out people. He is in fact inviting you and He is calling you in. Because even though those middle commands are the hardest words the idolatrous heart will ever hear, deny yourself and take up your cross, it is wrapped in glory. Do you get that? Those are the hardest words, but it's wrapped in glory because He says, if anyone will come after Me, and He says, follow Me, you can come after Jesus. He is not calling you to deny yourself all by yourself. He is not calling you to bear a cross alone. He's not calling you to suffer and die alone. He is calling you to Himself, to be with Him, to go with Him, beside Him forever. He is calling you and me to share His suffering and to share His cross. That way is laden with the rejection of the world. This way is laden with the suffering that the world inflicts, but it's with Christ. And there is no other way to the kingdom but through the cross. So I can't possibly stress to you enough how deep and how great this love is. Whatever love that we find in the world, cannot compare to the love that we have in Christ. So we have been going over the ministry of Jesus these several months, gazing into the face of the Lord of glory, listening to Him speak, and watching His wonders unfold. Why? Why have we been doing this? So that today, when you hear the call to take up your cross, to deny yourself and follow after Jesus, you are so certain of this man, and so captivated by this Lord of glory that you gladly drop the world where it is, hoist that cross to your shoulder with joy, and get after Jesus. That's why Luke begins, and that's why Jesus begins with these displays of His glory. 
so that now hearing the hard call, we will say yes all the way, no matter what the cost is. Pick up the cross. Hoist it to your shoulder and go with it. It's momentary. It's momentary. And if Jesus Christ is everything to you, then that cross is actually light. I mean, if He is your all in all, if He is your righteousness, your rock of refuge, and the rest of your soul, then this cross is light. And believe me, let's believe the Apostle Paul who said, there is an eternal weight of glory that makes all of this suffering just to be light and momentary affliction. In verses 24 through the rest of our section today, we have promises and we have warnings. Okay, hear the warning and hear the promise of the Lord. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Listen, church family, if you are going to live, you have to be able to spot an empty promise when it's given. Because the world is full of empty promises which are nothing but lies. According to the world, how must you live? Well, for you, It says, if you believe in yourself, if you follow your heart, if you are true to yourself, if you do what fulfills you, then you are going to live. The world says you owe that to yourself. It says, embrace your truth, your truth, and love yourself. So what follows then is that the commandment of Jesus to deny yourself is the worst thing that you could possibly do. Right? If the world was to be believed. But Jesus says, if you live to save your life and to have it all, you will lose your life and you will have nothing at all. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you sit here thinking that Jesus sounds too hard and too narrow and so less inviting and tolerant and open than the world, listen to him. Listen to what he is saying here. Because he is arguing here in verse 25 with airtight reasoning. He says, if you gain all the gifts of creation, but you refuse the creator, you're going to lose the creator and all of the creation both. If you obtain for yourself all the gifts of this world, but you refuse the giver, you are going to lose the giver and all of his gifts both. And what end is that? If you don't bow down to the Lord of glory, you don't have the gifts of the Lord of glory. 
So this is, this is airtight reasoning here and logic. But this is not cold reasoning. Jesus is not saying to you, okay, you don't like it, deal with it, or die. That's not how he is speaking. He is reasoning, but he is pleading. He is pleading with sinners. Do you understand that? The Lord of glory is pleading with you. For what does it profit you if you gain everything and lose yourself? Why is he pleading? Because Jesus Christ wants sinners reconciled to him. He wants you with him. That's his love. I said this a week ago. I want to repeat it. It might sound strange and it can be easily misunderstood. So I risk that, but I'm going to say it again. Because I believe this. This is not about Jesus needing you. Jesus doesn't need you like you need oxygen. But such is his love. He wants you like you need oxygen. And I'm not saying that he's desperate and he's frantic and he's lovesick or anything like that. Because it's not because of your loveliness or his loneliness that he wants you with this divine passion. It's not. It's not about you. It's about him. It doesn't say so much about you. It says everything about him. It's not that you are irresistible. He is. He is. And after all the demonstrations of his glory and this call and this pleading with sinners, I hope that you get that. He's the irresistible Jesus. And now in verse 26, he gives a warning and again a promise. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Why would you or why would anyone be ashamed of Jesus? Let me put it to you as plainly as I can. If you love the world right now, and if you love the things that are in the world, you are already ashamed of Jesus. The world might give some token, you know, recognition of Jesus. You hear it all the time. They're not afraid to, you know, thank Jesus for something or other. But the world hates him as he truly is. They like the moral Jesus. They like the prophet Jesus in a sense. They like the Jesus that feels good. They like the Jesus that's lying rather cute in the manger. They like Jesus as Savior. But Jesus, who is Lord of glory, who commands you to deny yourself and to take up your cross, this Jesus the world despises. And if you love the world and the things that are in the world, the Bible says the love of the Father is not in you, which means if you love the world, you are already ashamed of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to sinners, come to me. But to all of those who live their lives ashamed of Jesus, one day he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
he closes here with a promise of seeing his kingdom. And I'm just going to say this quickly about that for now. Jesus just wants us to realize it's not all cross with Jesus. It's not all cross. There is a kingdom. And through the cross, there is that kingdom. And when this kingdom of Jesus Christ comes at last in its fullness, for it has been inaugurated in his life, but not yet consummated upon this earth, when that kingdom comes at last, it's not that the cross is going to be forgotten, because we are going to sing praises for the cross of Jesus for all of eternity. The cross won't be forgotten, but it won't be hoisted to our shoulders and born ever again. Crown and kingdom are coming, but through the cross. I'll be honest with you. I have a strong feeling that some of you are wavering right now and you might not even know it. But in your heart and in your affections, you don't have great interest in Christ. And you feel on your heart and your affections another draw, another tug. And you like that because that feels like you and that feels like living. But I want you to hear the call of Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. He says, come after me. You will suffer for a while, but all the while that you suffer and forever afterward, you will be with me. You will be with Christ. Isn't that enough to be with him? I want to, I want to put it plain for those whose gospel understanding uh, might not be full yet. You realize that by laying down our lives and going the way of the cross, following Jesus, does not earn us salvation. We first take up the cross when we believe in Him as our only salvation. We take up the cross that He calls us to take up when we repent of our sin and we say to Him, I am a sinner that has rebelled against your authority. I have ruled me, and I have trusted in me, and I have gone my way. And that way ends in destruction. But Jesus Christ has died for my sin, and he has died for my guilt. And so I turn from me, and I trust in you, Jesus, to save me, to be my Lord. That's when we first take up the cross. And all our lives long, we continue to carry that cross, not to be saved, but because we are saved. Not to be justified, but because when we first repented and put our trust in Christ, we were justified with a declaration of righteousness that is eternal and forever secure. So let's pray. Father in heaven, through your Son, you call us to do a hard thing that is so against every natural instinct that we have, every natural desire. 
deny ourselves and take up our crosses is naturally the last thing that we would ever want to do. And on our own, we would never choose to obey that commandment. So I pray that every eye here, spiritual eye, the eyes of our hearts, would be wide open to see that Jesus is worth it. The Lord of glory is worth it. To be with Him, to come after Him, to follow Him, to be heirs of God and of your kingdom, it's worth it. For this lifelong but momentary suffering and self-denial that comes with the cross. May every heart believe that Jesus is worth it all. And may we all come. Oh Lord, I don't give increase. Through me, please plant the seed or water the seed of the Word of God that is on our hearts. But only You can give the increase. Only You can make the seed flourish into the plant of living faith. And I ask that you would do that in everyone today. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.